if you come from a conflict-stricken country where everything's destroyed, where most of the population is fled, where you're poor, where you're, you know, you're a marginalized person, you're, you're, you're persecuted along the, the bases of those marginality, you know, it's not difficult to understand that a population that makes its um, livelihood off the land would find climate change to be oppressive. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. Hi, I am Todd Miller, and who, along with my colleague Melissa Levoske, we write for the for the Border Chronicle. You can find us at the borderchronicle.com, where we publish pieces, uh, articles, essays, op-eds, audio podcasts every Tuesday and Thursday, and sometimes we have extra. So please come and subscribe. And today. I am very happy to be with the executive director and founder of Climate Refugees, Amali Tower. And I bet you remember Amali from, I think it was approximately a year ago when Amali was on another podcast and we were looking at climate change and displacement of people. And Amali is back with us today. Welcome, Amali. It's really an honor and pleasure to have you with us. The honor is all mine. Thank you, Todd, for having me back. So I wanted to get started, um, Amali, uh, because we have the COP. And the COP, it's funny because, you know, when you're out of the climate climate change sector, sometimes the word COP, like what is, what on earth is that, right? You hear that, the, the United Nations Summit, which is Council of Parties, right? Or Conference. is that what it, Conference of Parties? Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so the, the, the annual COP is going to start, and it's going to be in the United Arab Emirates, right? Correct? And it's yeah. going to start in, um, in at the, the end of November. 30th, I think is the official uh start there's usually like a pre-cop too and this will be the cop 28 so the 28th meeting of the un member states who are party to the convention so wow that's it's coming up and so first amali i just wanted to just get some maybe general thoughts because um on your part um since maybe we'll just start since we let we'll we'll move on to the cop later um, more specifically, but first, I just want to, you know, bridge from when the last time we talked, when we talked quite a bit about what are the sort of things going on in the world around climate displacement, people on the move, um, the border situations, and I wonder if we, you could just maybe like update us or inform us about what you see going on in the world at this moment that maybe our, some of our listeners would, you know, would like to pay attention to. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think since we last spoke, um, I guess one of the more positive things that has happened is um, the average person is probably keenly aware, you know, that, um, that climate change is probably displacing people. Like, you know, I don't think that that's, I think a year on, it's probably a little less mysterious or unknown, you know? And I think that's gonna happen, unfortunately, because of the climate tipping points, right? Uh, it's our inaction uh, that's kind of- what, like, it, Yeah, the climate tipping points, like what, what, um, what, like, yeah, what, what is an example of what that yeah. might be? So a tipping point being, you know, um, the increase and in frequency of disasters, the, um, the, the violence and severity of the impacts in these disasters, right? Uh, but not just the disasters, you know, and which are like kind of like rapid and sudden onset events, right? There's also these slow onset of events that are happening, you know, like we're seeing throughout in the Horn of Africa, you know, where 
I mean, Todd, it's like, you know, you can't even keep track of, of the numbers, you know, but over 50 million people have been impacted by by that drought, you know, um, and it's not just in the Horn of Africa, right? And Horn in East Africa, it's Southern Africa. Um, it's the dry corridor in Central America. You know, it's, um, and, and what, what does the drought look like? So that's food insecurity, right? So that means that people don't have enough, like basic sustenance to survive. Um, what if you're a farmer, you know? So it's not just that you can't, you're not eating, you're not producing enough to food, uh, rather to, to eat food, you're not producing enough for the likelihood, you know, that, that generates income for you and for your family. Um, you are poor and marginalized, so you don't have options, you don't have insurance, you don't have safety nets, you know, you live in a country that's already poor, uh, which might lack social protections for them, for the best of people who have, you know, um, more tools at their disposal. But, you know, I mean, think about it, like, think an average American farmer, which is a really tough trade, right, even in the richest country in the history of the world. Um, but if your crops fail, you have insurance. You also have the federal government. So you have private, you have private sector markets that might like, you know, mitigate your losses. Then you also have the federal government that steps in. I mean, we all know, right? If there's a, a drought in the breadbasket of America, you know, we, we have robust governments that can say, hey, you know, we need to step in. Um, or turn to disasters, Miami, uh, Florida, right? Um, there have been so many weather-related disasters that are climate change-fueled that um, I think six insurance carriers have pulled out of the state of Florida, right? Like four of Dang. them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So, so like things that you and I, the average person listening and an, an average American, to be very American-centric in this conversation, can relate. Oh, you know, oh, oh no, terrible thing has happened. Well, thank God I have insurance, right? And to say nothing of, let's just park. Can you afford the premium? Can you afford your deductible? Okay, forget that for a second. At least you have that safety net. Switch over to another geography, the dry corridor in Central America, right? Where people are continuously still coming to the US border. Do you think that those indigenous farmers have insurance? Do you think that those national governments have mechanisms in place to bail out all the farmers that you know can't make a livelihood anymore out of something they've done for centuries an oral tradition and oral history passed on from generation to generation that's also lost right um and what does that look like that looks like hunger that looks like starvation that looks like food insecurity that looks like i need to leave my home to um to find alternative means of survival that's what's happening all around the world you know um so whether you're a Floridian who has a few means or whether you're an indigenous farmer in Honduras um, or whether you're a pastoralist in um, Turkana, Kenya, um, you, we're all seeing that everyone's impacted, but the resources and the safety nets and the governments that you have that might be able to step in and help you mitigate some of those uh, impacts is certainly not equal. Right. So so that's why you, you have to recognize, you know, why are certain places seeing huge uh, upticks in forced displacement, you know, and, and how is that um, interacting with all the other, you know, uh, uh, vulnerabilities, insecurities, um, you know, lack of social protections that are forcing people to have to move, you know, and and how do you unpack what the climate element of all of that is, you know. So unfortunately, you know, um, while people are starting to kind of clue in to the fact that this is happening, we haven't advanced so much with like really unpacking what does this look like and why do we need, you know, tailored solutions to each specific uh, instance. Yeah, you you um, mentioned to me um, before we started recording something very I thought I found very interesting um, and provocative and and true um, that. Uh, that you know oftentimes when we're discussing climate in the global south particularly you know communities are, are presented as vulnerable that's a, like a word that's used quite a bit um and just thinking about all that you were just saying and you and you 
you really wanted to, you really challenged that you challenged that narrative by saying it's, it, well, isn't it like climate's oppressive? And that's what it is. And I couldn't help to be thinking that when you were just laying out, you know, there's the climate, but there's also like all these other factors um, involved that really makes that term oppression feel more accurate. And could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Absolutely. You know, so many ways in which I can come at that question. Um, so what, you know, working it with refugees for so long, right? Like in conflict scenarios, um, I always just kind of never sat right with me that, you know, the framing of refugees are all they're, they're vulnerable people in need of international protection. More accurately, they're oppressed people in need of international protection, right? Um, and that's why we, we, we have mechanisms that say a refugee is someone who's persecuted along, you know, five grounds. There is no international definition for persecution. You know, there, there's people like me who have to listen to someone's story and determine, ah, okay, you know, you're being sort of targeted along racial lines or religious, whatever, and this is tantamount to persecution. And I think it's that kind of like um, background that probably, whether I know it or not, right, subconsciously led to why I founded Climate Refugees, because it was so clear to me that when refugees started talking about climate, while also talking about the war or the persecution that they faced, that wasn't a hard sell for me. That was really easy for me to understand because if you come from a conflict-stricken country where everything's destroyed, where most of the population is fled, where you're poor, where you're you know you're a marginalized person, you're 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 persecuted along the the bases of those marginality, you know. It's not difficult to understand that a population that makes its um, livelihood off the land would find climate change to be oppressive, would find climate change to be tantamount to persecution, you know? And so nine years ago for me, well, 10 years ago, when I started thinking about this and founding the organization, that was so obvious that when, when I heard it at last, you know, all these testimonies I'd heard mm -hmm. for years prior, but the light bulb hadn't gone off. When I heard it at last, I was like, well, yes, of course. Of course, climate change is, oppress, is oppression to people who are reliant on natural resources and the land to, to eke out um, a livelihood, you know, to, is, is, is the difference between do I survive or do I thrive, right? So for, for us in the global north, it might be like, oh, gosh, yeah, the weather's becoming really, you know, Oh, uh, it's really hard to predict anymore. You know, that that might be our experience with climate change right now, you know, uh, or it might be for some people, gosh, my premiums are really going up. I need to move because they're, I, I'm in a real disaster prone area, you know, which is a more extreme mm. example than, than the first I just gave. Um, but it hasn't risen to the level of oppression, you know, of uh, nothing works. I have no safety nets. And I'll, I'll just lastly say, you know, isn't it interesting how when it comes to like really, we've, we've, we've said this all our lives when it's really hot, right? Oh, oppressive heat. Mm. Oh my gosh, Todd, that has such a different connotation for me in my head, you know? Um, the work I did in the Horn of Africa, you know, earlier this year or last year I was in North Africa, you know, two weeks ago I was in Southern Africa. And I just kept thinking, even, even though I wasn't even having this conversation I'm having with you, I kept thinking to myself, with everyone talking about the heat and how much more extreme it was and it should be at that particular time in the year. And I kept thinking, oppressive heat, oppression, of course, you know, for people in Africa, the continent that's feeling the worst and most extreme impacts of climate change, how is this not oppression, you know? Meanwhile, their contribution to climate change is 3% of global emissions for 54 nations. Yeah, that sounds a lot like oppression to me, you know? So, so, so that's what I mean by that. And I think that that's really important that we start recognizing that that's what climate change is for a vast majority of, of the world. Um, and we stop trying to like pass on global north narratives that then dictate solutions and policy and any any type of recourse let alone equity you know we got to start at what is the reality of the situation for the vast majority of people 
And I think it's really important to start thinking about things like, well, gosh, is this is is this oppression? You know, um, so that so that we don't just say things like, you know, survival migration, distress migration, which which it is. But I think it's so much more helpful um, if you really want to help people to think about this as how has a situation risen to such an oppressive level that I had I have absolutely no recourse but to leave my home country, you know, or to leave if you're moving from the rural to the urban, you know, to leave my my country farmland and and try and and become just yet another poor person in the capital who has to make their own way, you know. That to me is um, is a failure to recognize that something is happening and is being perpetrated upon uh, a people and that there's a responsibility that needs to be um, discussed. It's interesting that uh, thinking about that word too um, and how it frames, you know, cause you think of oppression and one might think of, you know, an oppressive government, a government that goes in and you know, arrest people or, you know, human rights defenders and they'll go after them and they'll put them in prison or, and that sort of thing. And I find it like, like hearing you frame it that way. And this is the first time I framed it that way in my own head. I think like it, when you frame it that way, the, so the, I guess the quote unquote solutions or the, the, the solutions that to this become a little bit different right like what like there's a certain way of tackling it if you're thinking of it as an oppression that is distinct from thinking of it in the other it's almost like the passive voice right oh this that ha you know it's like we've been describing what's happening to people in this passivity when in really it's there's something acting upon it and then what is it what do you think of that thought yeah, yeah, I think that that's um I think that that that's exactly it, you know. Um if um it's 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 based on a lot of assumptions as as you rightly said, you know, what we think oppression is and what oppression looks like and it speaks to why I said, you know, this is about flipping the narrative and looking at it through the perspective of the people for whom this is a lived experience. You know, because I mean, I mean honestly Todd, every solution, every Every narrative, every policy conversation, it's it's led by decision makers. The same decision makers, by the way, who have brought us to these problems, you know? And it just seems like common sense to me to go, well, hang on, maybe we should be introducing some different perspectives, you know? Because I mean, what I'm saying isn't, isn't exceptional. What I'm saying is informed by people who are, for whom this is a lived experience. And if you just take the time to listen to them and sit with that for a little while and then just kind of go, huh, yeah, well, what would I do if if I had absolutely no means? And and in the best of times, my my daily life was, you know, um, have I earned enough to put bread on the table today? You know, let me take a big step back and tell you a story about when I uh, long before I was working with refugees or uh, in climate, I was in Zambia and it was the height of the AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was there on this like advocacy mission because, you know, several governments in Southern Africa, especially didn't really have really positive policies. This is when South Africa wasn't really, you know, recognizing that HIV caused AIDS and there was just a whole lot of political resistance. Um, Anyway, uh, at the time in Zambia, the uh, life expectancy for a man was, I think, 35 or 36. And you couldn't even like be in Lusaka, you know, the capital, and not see just red earth mounds because that was the people were dying at such a rate. And I was just one day randomly in this taxi. And the taxi driver asked me, you know, oh, you know, I'm sure, why are you here? Blah, blah. I didn't want to get political. I didn't want to talk to him about, oh, you know, the Zambian government's policy or, or anything like that. But I just kind of generally mentioned that, you know, this is why I'm here. Basically what I just told you, just a little less detail. And at some point I asked him, you know, and he was kind of quiet. And I, at one point I asked him, I said, well, you know, how, how, how do you feel about things, you know? 
um, given how many people are dying and 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 what the death uh, toll is, and you know uh, the lack of government response or whatever, and it was really really quiet, you know. And eventually, you know, and he's he's driving, I'm in the back seat, so he's looking at me through the rearview mirror, and eventually he just goes, you know, it is very difficult to think about living for tomorrow when I'm not sure that I will have enough to live for today. You know, and that's like one of the most like earliest experiences of of my career, you know, working in various areas of human rights that was just so humbling, you know, and such a testament to, you know, all we really need to do is listen to people uh, for whom some of the worst conditions, atrocities, or situations in life are a daily lived experience, you know? And that is so instructive for us, um, not just of the humility it takes uh, to, to work with people in partnership, you know, but to make sure that solutions are reflective of what they're going through and not Global North narratives. You know, that's um what I when I think about and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you think about the United Nations summit, um, that's coming up, it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the conversations are more tailored towards that global north narrative, and less, less driven by people on the front lines of what's going on with climate right now would, would that be a correct assumption to make um yeah or what do you th- I think that's what it's always been for a very long time I've seen and you know we'll, we'll see I'll let you know when in December when I'm back from COP but I've seen efforts um especially from some of the UN um programs and funds, right? To make an effort to ensure that people with the lived experience, i.e. even displaced people, refugees, uh, are at the COP. Now, while that's incredibly welcome, something I know I and colleagues of like mind have hammered on forever about in the climate context and and not (laughs) in other contexts as well, um, you know, to, to, intentionally create spaces for people's um, inclusion. What I'm afraid of is, is, you know, while I'm saying the word inclusion, what I've seen a lot of is, you know, representation, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we need both. Otherwise, it's a little bit like, it, it can be a very tokenistic approach, right? Where, oh, look, here's, here's a really, you know, disadvantaged person is going to tell their story. And okay, you know, it's kind of like being invited to the party, but not the after party, you know? Mm-hmm. Inclusion means that that representative person is is also there for the discussions and the negotiations and, you know, informing the people who are powerful decision makers. To me, you know, we have to be very intentional about taking it to that level, that depth, that degree. And it remains to be seen, you know, whether that'll happen. But I have seen uh, people making the effort to actually say, hey, you know, We'd like to make sure that displaced people are, you know, in in these in these communities. So so we'll see what happens. But I'll just say, Todd, you know, while that's great, look at the system and the structures. You know, I run an organization where, you know, I'm I'm I am being invited and asked for my thoughts, opinions, our work to be represented, et cetera. But the system is so unsupportive that there aren't enough badges for people to even go to the cop. Uh, every email, every other email I have is someone looking for a badge and I'm sending just as many. Um, the funding is so limited to what we prioritize in the world for, for solutions that y- there are limitations to how you can be accredited with the UNFCCC in order to have a badge, you know, because it's expensive to do that. It's costs, it, it's, it, it takes staff it takes capacity now if i'm saying that as someone who is you know in the global north and has access to every opportunity in the world how on earth does someone who has an incredibly important and just as um has just as much of a right to be there with and tell their lived experience 
how on earth do they have access? So, you know, it's like we really need to step back and have these conversations in, in real time, but also in reality, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not about just going, oh, bring these people in. It's about really creating space for the people who can and should and have a right to inform policy to be there so that we're not all just recipients of institutions, bureaucracies, programs, funds, solutions that aren't necessarily like um, emblematic of the people for whom it's supposed to represent, you know? Yeah, it, it also makes it makes me think of um the uh, Paris Accords. Now they've been, what has it been, nine years since? 2015, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I was actually there. I was in Paris oh. for that one. The only one I've been to. I have not with a badge. I was hanging out <laughs> on the margins, but, but I was there. You. I was there. Um, to be at. This will be my first. Um, oh, that's your first. This. Oh, I thought you'd been. What I just said, Todd, is my lived experience. Um, wow. When you're not funded to yeah. do work, let alone go to cop, how, how do you go? You know, and I am not. Uh, I'm not an anomaly. I'm. I'm the rule, not the exception. So it's hard to get in. Oh, very hard to get in. Yeah, yeah. Tells you so a that, lot. It, yeah, it does. It does. And that brings me to that question. Like, when he, we, there was so much hype around the Paris Accords. And here we are nine years later. And it, and this is the question, like, how much, like, just, you know, has anything improved, like, has have things improved since the Paris Accords? And I actually want to also I'm curious to know, like, in terms of displacement slash people on the move, that that part of the climate conversation, has that been getting worse? Like, if we took the last nine years from the Paris Accords, has that worsened um, during the, that time? And is there a way that you could um, maybe comment on both those things, but let, like help readers understand the scope of the problem? at all yeah well to the displacement part every year we have more people displaced every year and it grows by millions right so people are displaced um, do you know how many millions were displaced like in 2022 or 2021 is there numbers yeah so uh we began so in 2023 and i and i'm forgetting what month we're even in now let alone when (laughs) because that's the reality of this work um we hit um uh 100 and just under 110 million people when that stat came out i think it was 108.5 million people and and for for this year for just for for this year exactly wow that seems like beyond 110 million people you know um I think the last time we spoke, oh my goodness, Todd. So I don't know, was that a year ago? Last time we spoke on your podcast, um, I remember this clearly because it was, um, I gave you a stat that was pre-Ukraine and it was about 84 million. So what does that tell you? That we are at a hundred, we, we're gonna, we, we're, we've surpassed 110 million. You know, I, I can, as we're speaking, I can like Google it and look up exactly what it is, but you know, 110 million people. Uh, are forcibly displaced in the world. Do all of them enjoy refugee status, which which would mean legal protection at the international level? No. You know, that was somewhere in the 36, 37 million people, right? And since that 110 million people, uh, you know, statistic, South Sudan is so much worse. You know, Sudan has happened. Gaza's ongoing. Um Ukraine is so much worse than it was, right? And so so these are conflicts I'm talking about. What about yeah. climate change, right? On average, about 23 million people are displaced each year by climate. Um, that's primarily internal displacement numbers. No one's tracking who's moving across borders. Um, in this year, we've had the UN Special Rapporteur, Ian Fry, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Climate Change, who put out his report in, I want to say it was June, uh, on um, in, you know protections for people displaced across borders by by climate change, and you know uh, Mr. Fry made made the point that you know we don't really even have an understanding of how many people are displaced 
uh, across borders by climate change. And even the numbers we have for internal displacement may not be as robust as they need to be. But here's the third thing that I really found helpful um, or, or really missing in the conversation. Uh, Mr. Fry made the point that um, maybe we need to face the fact that there's an unwillingness to really know how many people are displaced across borders by climate change. You know, um, specifically pointing out to UN agencies that are working on both migration and displacement, you know, um, that, that maybe they're not necessarily empowered uh, or supported to really know that information, you know. Um, why, why, why would there be an unwillingness? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in in in, Ms. in Ian's uh, mouth, you know, but what he clearly what he said was, um, you know, that that there there's a, a reluctance, I think is the exact word. Um, but, you know, I'd be happy to double check that, but a reluctance to really know. Now, me, Molly Tower speaking, and I want to be really clear about that is, um, well, because if we knew we'd have to be responsible, right? We'd have to be responsible for solutions. I, one, that, um, you know, respond to why people are being forcibly displaced. And then two, respond to what do we do when they're forcibly displaced, both of which we're failing to even have an adequate discussion about, let alone implement policies, um, funding, legal solutions. Right. It, it would open up so many conversations, Todd, that we need to have that we're unwilling to have. And that's why I say, you know, well, who's we and who's hold who's who's the pen holder of these conversations? Well, gosh, it's the same. It's the same actors, the global north actors that got us into this mess that are still determining what the solutions are. Meanwhile, ensuring that, you know, they don't have to actually have to make any real changes. They don't have to lower their emissions any more than they want to. Uh, they don't have to talk about things, you know, from the position of justice, equity. Uh, and I haven't even dared say the R word, reparations. Um, you know, these are all things that are sidelined that the vast majority of the world wants to have a conversation about. And I've been fighting for 30 years to have a conversation about so much so that last year, you know, finally, nearly 30 years in the making, this um, right, this this concept of a, creating a fund on loss and damage was um, was passed. Is there any money in that fund? No. Can you explain uh, what what that is? What does loss and damage mean? What is that fund? Yeah, so loss and damage is is a term that uh, I think it was Vanuatu, um, you know, like I said, thirty something years ago, um, first used to to speak of the irreparable losses and damages that certain countries are going to suffer. And I mean, being a small island state that is vulnerable to sea level rise and thus the seas, like actually wiping out your state, that's not a hyperbolic statement, right? Loss and damage now. Remember, they said this that many years ago. Since then, you know, it's been a global um, South uh, fight to make the point that, you know, past a certain point in global warming, in, in emissions, there will be um, irreparable losses and damages for, for, for multiple countries. And so the Paris Agreement um, agreed, or, you know, that what came out of that, I think it's Article 8, that, you know, countries pledged that they have a responsibility to keep global temperatures to 1.5, right, um, uh, or no more than two, and that they had a responsibility to avert, minimize, and address the losses and damages that certain countries will disproportionately, uh, certain countries and communities will feel as a result of climate change. Now, through those initiatives, you know, we, we've, we've talked about like, okay, so why do certain people, why is there climate adaptation? Because for certain communities, countries, they're going to have to adapt to situations, to temperatures, to circumstances that they've had no role in creating, but are unduly affecting them. So they're supposed to have been all this funding, support, technology transfers, investments to help countries adapt, shore up their resiliency that too hasn't happened. So when that doesn't happen either adequately, then what happens? People are left with very few means to withstand the effects of climate change and eventually get to a point where there are irreversible effects of climate change, i.e. 
why are 56 odd million people impacted in the Horn of Africa by the worst drought ever seen where scientists have said, you know, is, is so much more um, severe and, impa and, and impactful in a negative way because of climate change, you know? Um, why is, is, is the dry corridor, you know, happening? Why are disasters more frequent? Why are 110 million people displaced, not all of whom are refugees, right? Like we're seeing the impacts and these are climate tipping points that are pushing negative outcomes. So for some people, for some countries, those are irreversible effects. Those are irreversible losses and damages where certain places might become uninhabitable. And that uninhabitability, un Todd, doesn't just look like, oh, the seas are over our island state. No, there's salinization, right? We can't grow our crops anymore because, you know, we live right off the sea and, and, and we're not just fishing. We're also growing crops. We're trying to be self-sustaining. Um, we might even be exporting certain things. And now that, that trade is diminished as well. Why? Because of the salinity in the, in the soil. You know, there's so many different ways in which you can look at it. And, you know, and that's why climate change effects are carte blanche the same for everybody, because we didn't all start at the same starting line. Right. Um, so th these are all the ways in which one has to understand. And when you look at the Paris Agreement and you see that there was a commitment, you know, um, a legally enforceable commitment that that countries pledged to say that they will do everything they can to minimize, avert, and address uh, loss and damage, uh, they haven't done that. So, you know, the late great Salim al-Huq, you know, was, was very famous for saying, um, we have missed our opportunities to minimize and avert. We're in the era of loss and damage, and now's the time to address it. Hence, a loss and damage fund that is going to compensate countries um, for, for these irreversible effects. So that was agreed to at COP27 last year. Has it been funded? Has all the mechanisms for how it's going to be distributed? Who's paying how much and what and who does it go to? Uh, how do you ensure a human rights um, approach to addressing these harms? all of that is being discussed and this whole year there was a transitional committee form they've had five meetings the last one just wrapped last week and uh unfortunately it's not looking that good you know human rights aren't being insured um there's discussion that the global north countries i.e polluting countries are very much driving the outcomes and or stymieing progress you know, both in equal measure. Which is on, so it makes me think of all the things that you've mentioned up to this point. So you have first the global North countries, and then when you take the percentages of historic greenhouse gas emissions, way, way much higher than the global South. So you have that. You have what you're talking about with um the sort of seeming reluctance of tallying people crossing borders. Um, where it's interesting because it's true, there's a lot of internal displacement, but I always get, I'm like, well, I mean, wouldn't some people internally displaced go across borders as well? I'm sure that happens. So it seems, so that, that sort of reluctance. And then you think of like when you're talking about all this and then talking about loss and damage and seeing who would be responsible for that. And what I see when you talk about the borders is this massive fortification of borders around the world as an almost adaptation to, you know, instead of funding a loss and damage fund, what we're getting is more walls and surveillance technologies and armed border enforcers everywhere. Is that a um, somewhat accurate assessment, Amali? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, your great work has shown, right, how much um, countries, polluting countries are spending on border security rather than on climate adaptation. You know, the $100 billion that they were pledged in 2009 to provide to Global South countries, you know, has it's, it hasn't yet materialized. In fact, here we are going into COP28. So 2009, imagine, do the math listeners, how long ago was that, right? We're still 
next in the next two weeks going to be talking about hey how, how about that hundred billion you know might we be seeing a check soon we're still having that level of a conversation it's ridiculous you know meanwhile can you imagine if that level of inefficiency was to be uh, presented at uh, in the security apparatus can you imagine what 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 would that look like you know so the money's there Todd right it's the political will it's the political interest it's the responsibility conversation right it that's what's lacking and that's why I'm all about you know if I'm if I have to keep hope alive you know which of course we all have to do what's missing is what are we not talking about you know that's where we really need to be focusing our energy you know what what's not part of the conversation present that bring that in and and that what very quickly becomes who's missing in the conversation right so it, it's it's about you know meeting the inequality at least at that level so that there is pushback to say what you're saying makes absolutely no sense you know i don't know what climate change you're dealing with but here's our reality that that needs to be presented stronger and stronger and stronger so that we have some real moral response to these very immoral decisions that are being made by polluting countries, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. They're spending far more on keeping people out, which if you think about it, um, these countries aren't doing this for illogical reasons. So it has to make you wonder, how much do you know then that you know climate has the uh, propensity to to increase forced displacement? Look at look at the Mediterranean, right? Look at that. Um, was it what month was that? That was June. The worst Mediterranean boat tragedy to date, right? Look at the populations yeah. that were on there. You know, Pakistan is one example. We all know what happened in the floods in uh, Pakistan last year. Um, how many? multi-millions were displaced how many thousands died how pakistan has no ability to even come back from that you know who's going to compensate pakistan for the economic impacts of that uh of, of that flooding to say nothing of the non-economic losses right so you have to be able to look at it from all these different points of view and that's the conversation that we've been having and we will have in very robust ways um in dubai later this month that's 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 good i'm glad you're going to be having those conversations and it really like hearing you speak it really takes us me back to that idea of oppression you know the idea of oppression that you mentioned at the beginning and seeing it through the that sort of light of oppression and um and yeah and then and then just thinking about how you know the conversations that you have in Dubai and going forward um what do you what are what do you think is on the horizon are we gonna are we gonna see more displacement of people moving forward um is that what we should expect or do you see any other outcomes that are possible or what do you what do you see going forward Unfortunately, what I see is the same steady trajectory we've seen for decades, an increase in forced displacement year upon year. And that's not negative Nelly speaking, that's because, well, we're not doing anything to help people, you know, not be forcibly displaced. We're also not doing anything to help ensure someone's right to stay. You know, what does that, what, what might that look like in this climate context? Hmm, gee whiz, could that sound like adaptation funding? You know? Yes. Right? <laughs> if, if climate is here, climate change is here, and it's really oppressive in my country, gosh, might I need global support to help me adapt in place? You know? And so when that doesn't come, and the climate tipping points, because you're also not lowering your emissions, you know? continues to make my situation you know worse year upon year maybe i need to now migrate as a means of adaptation well you're also not supporting that because well how do you migrate it costs a lot of money 
Uh, how do you uh, respond to visa regimes? How do you respond to border regimes? How do you respond to the complete lack of pathways that allow someone the right to migrate? So then when that shows up as what people want to phrase as, oh, illegal migration at the US southern border, ask yourself, well, how, how was I supposed to legally get here? Right? I don't have a right to even have a visa. I don't have, you know, the money, even if I had a right to the visa. You know, the truth is people don't have the money nor the visa. So now I'm in a situation I absolutely have to flee, you know, and whether it's climate conflict, it's, you, you know, both, you know, there's, there's layers upon layers of oppression. And it's not, it's not our, our first priority isn't to figure out Ooh, what's your trigger for displacement? Well, hang on, what's your hierarchy of oppression? It's all oppression, you know? Why are we cherry picking who's worthy of protection? Why are we not having conversations that say to your earlier question about, well, surely when people are internally displaced, eventually those people have to cross borders? Of course they do, Todd. Do you know how many refugees I've met that do have refugee status that have left a conflict who have told me about their displacement that first was internally? and multiple internal displacements. And when the needs continue to go unmet, they cross a border. You know, it's it's extremely common as it would be for you and I, right? Your first instinct isn't to go, oh gosh, I'm gonna leave my country. Now, you might leave your country if your persecution is coming from the government, you know? But by and large, that's not always the case everywhere in the world, you know? Some people can like leave their their province, their, their, their certain situation, you know, and, and seek protection elsewhere in their country. Look at, look at, look at Colombia, which used to have the largest amount of IDPs in the world during, you know, the conflict with FARC, you know, which went on for 50 years, right? Colombia had the largest amount of IDPs in the world. I mean, does that not prove what I'm saying to you? You know, it's yeah. like, you know, and Colombia could very easily, Colombians could have very easily crossed borders as well. And they did, but it didn't change the fact that they had the largest amount of IDPs in the world. By the way, since I'm talking about Colombia and, and what I've been saying about lived experience, does it surprise you then, Todd, that Colombia is the only country in the world right now that has legislation in place to actually provide legal protection to internally displaced Colombians as a result of climate change? lived experience, might it produce empathy and compassion and leadership? You know, and that's what I see all around the world. People for whom this is a lived experience are leading the way with solutions. So they should be at the front, the front of the conversations in Dubai, right? I mean, by that very logic. Yeah. And what kind of, just as a last question, because I think we're running out of time at this point, but as a last question, if the people and with a lived experience in the communities that are most facing climate, people will say in the global south, if they were at the at the front of the table, if they were at the in the front and in the in the conversations um and enacting the policies, what kind of world do you think would result from that? Well, for one thing, it would be representative of the actual problems, you know, truly representative, which I have no doubt would be revelatory for a lot of people. Because all of a sudden, you know, you'd have to confront the fact that why, why didn't I know this? Well, because the people for whom this is happening don't aren't powerful, aren't the decision makers, aren't the people that are deemed as like, you know, um, important and, and, and worthy of attention, you know, um, gosh, I mean, you know, I, I hesitate to even, even bring this up as an example, but, you know, as you and I are speaking, a, a very good example of what I just said is what's going on in Israel and Gaza, right? I think, dare I say millions of people, are waking up to something that's been ongoing for 75 years, right? Um, and, or, or 56 years of occupation or 17 years of uh, a blockade, you know, take whichever number what you want. Um, we have to, we have to re like, I don't know why people don't have these conversations in reality, 
you know, who's holding the conversation uh, is generally not representative of who is bearing the brunt of the problem. Um, no matter the topic. And that's why I think there are tipping points and there are reckonings and there are new people that come to an issue and go, how did I not know about this? Well, because it's not deemed important. It's not deemed, and I don't mean it, those people aren't deemed important, right? Like they're not, they're not the, um, the powerful or the people that we need to care most about. It's It goes back to this cherry picking kind of approach, you know, cherry picking of who's deserving and worthy of protection and under what conditions. And, and it's just not representative of, of what the world really looks like, you know? So I'm kind of giving you like a very meta example, but it's, it's very timely, you know, um, given what's going on in the world that year upon year, we're having conversations and we need to ask ourselves, are they really reflective of, of what the problems are and where the problems are and for whom, you know, these problems are uh, manifesting. Yeah. Well, that's, this is why um, I have to say, like, I appreciate so much your work, Amali, the work of climate refugees, that work that you do stressing that the people in the communities that have the lived experience should be the ones um, at the front front line, at the ones that at the front of the, these debates and these conversations, and that sort of work that you've been doing now for what nine years? Nine years now. Yeah. Nine years month. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that sort of. I don't. I mean. Yeah, you're you're one of the only organizations I know of that is is doing this sort of, you know, nitty gritty on the ground, really taxing work up a up a steep hill at times, right? With climate and mm -hmm. uh, the go back to that term oppressive, you know, it's mm -hmm. yeah, just that sort of framing of it just changes it. And um, I just wanted, you know, to say how how impressed I am with your work and not only like, you know, the data, I want to mean by that is the day-to-dayness of it, you know, and um, how much it contributes to everything. And, and it's, and really thank you for being here with us today, you know, and I think you're um, probably the top thinker on climate for me, you know, um, to go to, to think about, these issues and it's just uh, an honor to have you um, speak with us. So I wanted to leave it on that note. That's incredibly kind, Todd, and um, truly appreciated. Um, um, it's 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 really nice to 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 be seen, to feel seen, um, and I I'm so you know honored and grateful that that we get to have these conversations because I just value your work so much value you as a person um and i really appreciate that you know that you make space for these conversations um and a different conversation you know than we're having so um no you're right the day-to-day -day is 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 absolutely um exhausting isn't even the right word uh it's soul numbing <laughs> to be honest with you and um, and that's not because it's hard. Uh, it is hard. It's because it's systemically unsupported. Um, and I I just I, you know I know we're we're, we're at time, but I, I just I want to share that because you know if I'm not going to say that, who on earth will? And if it if it looks like that for me, for someone who has endless privilege and opportunity, you know, and I say that as a brown woman, an immigrant, right? Well, myself have gone through immigration and asylum and um but I, I recognize how much privilege I have if if that's what it is for me I can't imagine what it's like and I want and I want anyone listening to this to understand then what don't you even know let alone could ever fathom it takes to come to any border and and seek asylum to seek protection what 
ungodly, unfathomable situations are you dealing with? Um, and I, I think, you know, if that's one thing that I can say today that someone listening might, might, you know, and I, I don't want anyone to have that lived experience. My God, our work should be to, to stem the tide of how many people are having that lived experience. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't have to think about it, you know, and try and understand it and, uh, and try and grow in compassion and in empathy and in solutions and policies that are reflected in that. Thank you for sharing that. I re really appreciate it. And I think that's often the part of the work that's done, especially in human rights and, and, um, you know, that the, those sorts of struggles that, that systemic struggles that people have to endure, um, is, makes it tough. And, and, um, and so I, it's really important for, all of us to hear that because you're also doing this work that's so invaluable to all of our understanding of what's happening. Um, and hopefully, you know, indeed con helping construct, even if we're thinking into future generations, but uh, in, to construct a better world, another world. And um, that is appreciated. Where, um, Amali, where can people find you? And if they wanted to support climate refugees, um, or had any ideas for support? Like how could, uh, how would it best be for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, thank you for that, Todd. Absolutely, we could really use the support. Um, best way is on our website um, under donate, <laughs> climate-refugees.org. Um, yeah, climate-refugees.org. Uh, you can uh, also, you know, find us on all social media. You know, if you want to go to Twitter, I'm at Tower Amali, and our website is linked there. Um, yeah, speaking of uh, support and uh, systems that don't necessarily enable and support this work, let alone solutions, you know, um, it's it's been nine years of, of doing this work uh, primarily unfunded, you know, because if the conversation doesn't exist, Todd, where does philanthropy get its cues except through policy so if we're fighting to even like get this as a policy agenda you can imagine then what the funding landscape looks like right so is it any wonder that there aren't people that are um forget empowered they're not funded to help drive solutions um and i'm one of them and uh, mm -hmm. it took me years to to recognize that uh there was no shame in saying that because, you know, somehow, again, our, our systems, our narratives make us think, well, gosh, if you're not being funded, what are you doing wrong? It took me yeah. years to recognize, no, no, I'm not the problem. The system's the problem, you know? Yeah. So it's, we need to say that for everybody else that'll come after us because this is not how it's meant to be, you know? Thank you for that. Honestly, with the Border Chronicle, we run into the, you know, the constant, like, why can't we just do our work and not have to worry about, you know, constantly, or is it going to be sustainable, you know, and, and it's like pains, pains us to say, oh, we need your help, but, uh, but we do, right? Exactly. Like, it pains yeah. us because somehow we think we should have shame in that. Um, when the real shame is, why doesn't someone, donors, philanthropy, all decision makers recognize this work is vital, you know? I don't know what I do without the Border Chronicle, you know, really. So yeah, fund the Border Chronicle, fund climate refugees, you know. Um, yeah, we we. How much how much better would the work be if we weren't having to fight to keep the lights on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. We should have a whole other conversation about that. Yeah, maybe we will. <laughs> Maybe next time. We'll definitely have you on again, Amali. Yeah. But as always, so appreciate your what you what you bring, your insight, um, the way that uh and really, really helpful for me on um, this conversation thinking as I as I always do around this time of the year as we head to the cop um and have a little bit of maybe something could get done optimism <laughs> beforehand. But at least at the very least, I know that you're out there and doing that on the ground, the work on the ground, 
work and um so that's very much appreciated but we'll have you back on and maybe we'll have we'll have that how do we keep the lights on conversation the next time we can bring, anyway. bring partners and friends who are in the same boat who are yeah. how it takes a team of as you well know a, a team of committed visionary hopeful uh loving people to to do any of this work and uh I'm so grateful for all of them, and that includes you. Thank you so much, Todd. All right. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.